0: Today on Edge Effects.
1: One of the paradoxes of modernity is that we are unbelievably interconnected in the world today. And most of those interconnections, most people don't see at all. And how you can take moral and political responsibility for the consequences of your own life, if you don't know how your own actions are proliferating out into the world, I just don't know you do that. And I think that's A big chunk of what environmental history has always been about.
0: Writer Patrick Reardon sits down with environmental historian William Cronin to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the publication of his book, Nature's Metropolis, Chicago and the Great West. They discuss Cronin's path to the project, its continued relevance, and the moral work of writing about the past. Their conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at the Drake Hotel in Chicago at the annual meeting of the American Society for Environmental History.
2: Well, Bill, we're we're here to celebrate the 25th or 26th anniversary of the publication of uh, Nature's Metropolis. Uh, and before we all kind of weigh in with questions and, and comments about the book, when you look back over the last quarter century and before before the book came into being, what are your thoughts you know from this perspective from this distance about that
1: book yeah huh that's not actually a question I was expecting so what I
3: <laughs> what
1: I would say is you know funny thing about, And I think everybody in this room, including you, knows this feeling. The funny thing about writing a book and publishing a book is that once the book is in the world, it's not really yours anymore. You had something to do with creating it. It somehow represents a past you at the moment that it came into being. But there's a way in which it becomes an object of interpretation and contestation and argument, and people draw their own lessons from it. Mm -hmm. That's part of, in both, it's one of the pleasures and joys of a book, is watching it come to be owned by other Mm -hmm. people. And I, you know, the book, uh, when I was working on the book, I had several different goals for it. There's a way in which every book I've ever written has been a critique of an earlier project of mine, because everybody knows when you finish a project, you know more about what's wrong with it than any other human being on the universe. And I had written a doctoral dissertation at Oxford that nobody's ever seen a word of in this room that was a history of energy consumption in a town in the Midlands of England called Coventry, looking at how the city consumed energy and used energy from 1860 to 1950. And I reached the end of that project, and I was acutely aware that I had written about a coal-based economy without ever talking about the coal fields from which that coal had come that came into that city and transformed its life. And so Nature's Metropolis is in a way a critique of that dissertation for its inattention to the place where the coal came from Mm -hmm. in the case of Coventry. And so the writing of that book was about trying to rethink relationships between city and country. Uh, And the more I thought about that, the more complicated and elaborating it became. One of the oddities of the book when it came out is that, although I clearly was trying to speak to Western history and environmental history and urban history and agricultural history, I had comments from people in almost each one of those fields all saying that although they liked the book and had learned from it, it wasn't really agricultural history. It wasn't really urban history. It wasn't really Western history at a moment when Western history was becoming Trans-Mississippi Western history. And Sam Hayes actually said, it's not really environmental history. (laughs) So it's sort of a can't win kind of situation. But I would say that one of my... My biggest reaction is just gratitude that the book resonated with as many people as it did, provoked as many conversations as it did, and clearly helped people think about their own circumstances in ways that that matter to them.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, think
2: of thinking of it as this this product that was written by this guy named Bill Cronin twenty five years ago, and as someone you know who's Study, it been in the field and is an important figure in the field. How would you evaluate it? And what, what has it done? What has it accomplished?
1: Well, I think it was part of a number of works um, that began to break down the boundary between city nature and rural or wild nature. I mean, I'm, I'm of the conviction, as everybody in this room knows, that environmental history, one of the wonders of environmental history is that it opens up a space of exploration where anything and everything in the human past can be looked at in terms of how human actions are embedded in a material world that is only partly of human making, and that nature doesn't end at the Bob Marshall wilderness. It doesn't end in a wheat field in southeastern Washington state. It's right here. It's right inside my body. Mm And although Nature's Metropolis looks at the city, country, human nature interface at a particular regional scale, which is both, I would say, its strength and its weakness. So the book that Marsha mentioned that's a microhistory of Portage, Wisconsin is about trying to take the really massive bird's eye scale of Nature's Metropolis and bring it down to something much more intimate and local, because that's a weakness of the book. Mm -hmm. There are almost no people in nature's metropolis. And almost no lived, textured reality of kind of classed, gendered, raced, ethnic people. They're just not in there. I mean, Jim D. Burroughs with his potatoes going down the Mississippi River is probably the most pointed human being writer <laughs> exactly. in that entire book. So there are precious few people in the book. Well, did you have a problem getting it published since there
2: were no people in the book? I mean, the, the review in the Tribune, uh, by uh, by Ward, uh, uh, just was a glowing review. Except he pointed out there are no people in here, um, and you know, having dealt with editors, you know, for a long time, you know, I, I, what, what? How many editors said to you you got to put people in here? You know, throw, inject them in here?
1: No, not at all. No, no. I mean, I, I did not. I never got that from my editor, no. who was very tolerant of all sorts of things about that particular book. Um, I mean, what I would say is uh, one of my passions as a writer, as well as as a scholar and teacher, is taking boring things that people pay no attention to that matter enormously in their lives, but they don't notice them, Mm -hmm. and try to figure out how we can narrate those things, embedding them in a set of natural and geographical contexts as well as time contexts, so the things that you've been walking by your entire life without ever seeing come alive. And although telling stories about people is one way of doing that, I'm actually more intrigued more often than not, at least in this book, by how you take dead, inert stuff and make it become really intriguing. Mm-hmm. So one of my missions in life is to take boring stuff and make it unboring. And Have you
2: ever met Robert Caro?
1: I have met Robert Carroll once or twice. I'm a huge fan of Robert Carroll's.
2: Well, I've, I've interviewed him... I would never time. want him
1: to write my biography.
2: <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: he doesn't have time. Right? He would take 30 years. Right. Um, I've interviewed him several times and talked to him, and he's kind of uh, something of a, a friend. Um, and when I, I want to be Robert Carroll when I grow up. And his book... The Power Broker, and your book, Nature's Metropolis, are the two best books about cities uh, ever written. I mean, it is just, they are, no, I, I, I you know, I.
1: That's incredible. I mean, well, give, it, if, uh, the Power Broker is an 1,100 page fine font print book. If you've never read it, you must. I would put it in the top 20 books of my life. In terms, If you want to learn relentless, riveting momentum, a book of 1,100 pages you cannot put down, he just drives you. It's a you quick eleven 1, hundred. Yeah, it is. It's, it's an astonishing book. So he's just praised me. Uh, my he's, head is getting bigger by yeah, the moment right. here. So, well, it, it,
2: and and the thing with Caro is, is somebody made the, the joke that he never met a fact he didn't like, and he's he goes into these boring things. I mean, the the power broker is about Robert Moses, who was never elected to anything and changed the face of New York and Long Island. Um, and as well as New York State in ways that no single human being had ever done and will ever do right. um, and so and that was a thing where he was unknown and he, he was brought into the so your book is taking you know this stuff like the, 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 the forest and the, the the pigs and the you know uh, all and, and the bankruptcies and the and the Tribune subscriptions I mean the, the research in yours reminded me of the research in his in this kind of creative research of, uh, there's the one uh, place where you talk about uh, an indication of how much money was invested in Chicago was the number of, the percentage of uh, subscribers to the Tribune who lived on yeah, the East Coast, or the East uh, in the East, uh, 25% or something, whatever that number was. You know, the idea of just coming up with that idea of looking at that as a way of finding it, that out um, what is it about your research methods? Why, why were you able to do the, that sort of, you know, the kind of researching stuff it, uh, that, that hadn't been researched at all? And um, and did the research come, or were the questions, and obviously they're both at the same time, but uh, what? how much did you go into the research not knowing the questions you were trying to answer?
1: Well, so I, I think I knew the big question, uh, which was, is it possible to write the history of the West or of the American frontier, whatever word you want to use, um, not out on Turner's frontier, but sitting in the metropole, or in the case of Chicago, kind of a secondary metropole, because in many ways New York is the engine behind the story that I tell in that book. Is it possible to write that story looking out from the city toward the hinterland, which is, for the Canadians in the audience, you'll recognize... As many US historians don't, that I was utterly drawing, I was rewriting US history the way Canadian history in the wake of Harold Innes had been done. So I was utterly drawing on the way Canadian history has been written since the 1920s and, in effect, trying to recast US history in that way. So that question of writing in terms of city and country, that was the beginning. I started there. And the Coventry study carried me into that. The question about the research is having asked that question, everybody in this room knows what this is like, you know what it's like. You start looking for things that are relevant to that question. And I came to think of the research for this book as looking for what I called relational data, mm-hmm. meaning uh, it's it's pretty easy to find statistics and documents about a particular place. It's easy to find stuff about Chicago. It's not nearly so easy to look for documents and data that are connections. Mm-hmm. So I, I just went on a rummaging expedition for anything and everything I could find that was somehow what fit this description of relational stuff. Um, And I was surprisingly successful in some areas and completely unsuccessful in others. I wanted to do something on manufacturing that wasn't just pork packing. Mm -hmm. I started looking for steel records. I wanted, actually, although I had done coal in the case of Coventry, I wanted something on energy flows. And I just could not find anything Adequately connecting Chicago with the Illinois coalfields mm-hmm. to do that, so that just dropped out of the picture in that space.
2: Well, how um, you mentioned Coventry, and you, you finished that dissertation, and, and you know what the problems are with it, but, but you're not, you don't want to do that book right away. You had, you had another book, you, had, you know, other books that you had to do first. Do you remember the moment or the the, the the, the, the thing that got you started on the research to this, and what was it, and, and what what were the first steps?
1: Well, so that, I mean, there are people in this room who know the story that I think is the best answer to that question, so forgive me if you've heard this. but So I, I finished the Oxford dissertation in 78. Mm-hmm. I went to Yale, started work on what was to be my American PhD, and I actually arrived in the first year already thinking that a city-country study was going to be what I would do. I actually interrupted it with a seminar paper I did in my first year, which became the book called Changes in the Land. But when I designed the Chicago project initially, it was under the sign of Frederick Jackson Turner, and it was with me as something called a Western historian, because in 78, I didn't think there was something called environmental history that I could get a job in. So I obscured the fact that this question about city and country had something to do with environment and nature. It was all about, in effect, turning Turner on his head Mm -hmm. and thinking about the frontier in urban terms rather than in rural terms. And I actually wrote the first two chapters, which you will all know as the booster chapter, the one about the boosting of Chicago, and the railroad chapter. Those two chapters got written first. In the meantime, I published a book called Changes in the Land, where all of a sudden I became well-known as something called an environmental historian. And I was working on this huge book about Chicago that had nothing to do with environmental history, or at least I had hid right. everything about it that was about the environment. And I actually lost faith in the book. I, I'm somebody who I'm somebody who cannot write if I don't believe in what I'm doing. Right. And there was about a three, four-year interval where I was starting teaching and doing other things, and I just did not believe that the Chicago book was what I wanted to be doing. And since it was my Yale PhD dissertation, I was in a bad You're situation. Right. And I then sat down and wrote the prologue. Uh-huh. So the sequence of writing is 1, 2, prologue, three, four, five. Mm-hmm. That's the order in which it was written. And the prologue was actually Bill Cronin persuading himself that the book was worth writing uh-huh. and and reframing the book as environmental history. Mm-hmm. So the prologue had as its purpose the repurposing of a western history sort of a traditional frontier inverted frontier study into an environmental history space and that solved the problem and enabled me to write the book
2: how important was it for you to think
1: of it as environmental history in other words
2: if if environmental history had not popped up as a as a thing uh, would you have gone ahead and written the book uh, and would it have how would it
1: have been different well, so I think environmental history was popping up. As a thing. The, the environmental stuff was in that book from the beginning. Yeah. I went into Western well, history. What I mean. what it, so my senior year of college, I took a course from Alan Bogue on the history of the American West. And it was the half of his two-semester course that was all about the public lands, the national parks, the national forests, uh, inter- interactions with native peoples. And that was the moment that I fell in love with Western history. Mm-hmm because it seemed like a way of thinking about American land, mm-hmm. which I have had a passion for wow. all of my life. And so the book I would have written had I not suddenly realized I could be an environmental historian and still have a job yeah. um, was foregrounding that stuff, reframing it mm-hmm. so that that was central. But had I done the book in the in the traditional way, of, were I to show you the prospectus for the dissertation, mm-hmm. written in 79, it the chapter sequence is the same. Yeah. So it would have been. Recognizably but similar. The,
2: the environmental stuff might have been more buried than right. Because my my sense of the book is, I think it's the best history of Chicago, the, the best book written about Chicago, because it's so multi leveled. You know, and uh, uh, and Ward Just in his review also said, "Well, you didn't deal with politics. Well, there's so many books that deal with politics. You know, right. you don't need another book about politics." But you wrote about stuff that no one else had ever written about. And it was like every page, there's something no one else had written about. How did you choose Chicago? Why Chicago? Uh, You you could have done conceivably St. Louis from a different perspective. You could have done uh, whatever.
1: So I knew I wanted to do City Hinterland. And the Canadians had already done obviously Montreal, which is the grand kahuna for early Canadian history on that. I wanted to be a Western historian, so the, candid- the obvious candidates were St. Louis or San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest candidate, obviously, would have been New York City, right. but New York City would have been overwhelming because right. it's the whole continent in terms of that story. And so, and, and I'm a, I grew up in Wisconsin, so I grew up in, in the hinterland of Chicago, mm-hmm. and I had very complicated emotions about Chicago, as those opening pages tell you, and so, in a way, although it is a book about Chicago, it's also very much a book about the Middle West. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was never in much doubt, actually, that for the story, the kind of story I wanted to tell, Chicago was the obvious place. Right. I and mean, there is a book like that to be written about San Francisco. In some ways, a couple of people have done books on San Francisco that are in this territory. But that's much more of a mining story in the early years. Right. And that's a fabulous, fascinating story. But for the world, I know most intimately that really is where I come from, right. who I am, Chicago's the place. Minneapolis-St. Paul, obviously, for grain, right. is spectacular, and I don't do justice to that story in this well, book. Well, also, any
2: of those cities would, would be interesting. Chicago is, is a big kahuna. Um, you know, uh, you've got New York, and then, then it's Chicago. Uh, And and you know the 20th century becomes more complex. But one other
1: thing to add is, I mean, the great British urban historian Asa Briggs uh, used a term called "shock cities," Mm -hmm. where he said that for any given historical moment from the Enlightenment forward, there are certain cities that stand as the shocking symbol of an emerging, call it a modernity, that is unrecognizable to the period before. In the 18th century, it's Manchester. Mm-hmm. and the early 19th century, Manchester and Birmingham. Uh, in the 20th, first half of the 20th century, it's Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. But for the second half of the 19th century, there's no question that it was Chicago. Yeah. And people who came to Chicago had that reaction, that they were seeing the future right. and were disturbed by the future that they thought they were seeing. So notice there's one other benefit of Chicago, which is I was very conscious that, though it's a very particular history. Of one very particular city, and I had an economic historian on my dissertation committee, a wonderful historian named Bill Parker, that said, you know, you really can't do just Chicago. You need to do six cities so you can <laughs> compare, right. you can compare them, because right. otherwise you can't make causal claims. Yeah, you're only making narrative descriptive claims. That was okay with me. I'm I'm okay with narrative descriptive claims, but. But What I would say about that is that I was very conscious that the story I wanted to tell about Chicago has analogs all over the world today. So the idea that there is a city that is acting in effect as the interface between a much larger globalizing economy, so it's a kind of colonial outpost Mm -hmm. of a set of emerging connections with a periphery, that that city is coordinating the transformation of that periphery on behalf of capital and power over here right that's the story of modernity yeah and chicago is an amazing example but it's not at all hard to see you know in the pearl river delta right now that story is unfolding mm-hmm. that story is unfolded in brazil it's unfolded in many many other parts of the world right
2: you you talk about uh i mean the boosters talked about the inevitability of chicago and um your book makes it real clear that there were many factors that, that came into play uh, at the same time uh, uh, to to make Chicago happen, including the the uh, the commitment of uh, of Eastern money, the, the decision of the Easterners. Here's where we're doing it, and so once you do it, then 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 there's a fire, and you got to rebuild just because we've invested so much money. If if it hadn't been Chicago, do you have any thoughts on what it would have been? Would it have been a, an early Gary or Milwaukee or what? I any
1: thoughts? Uh, so I'm, you know, although I'm an environmental historian to the core, I'm even more to my core. I'm a historian, period. Right. Yeah. And um, I'm fascinated in particular by certain kinds of historical phenomena in the last quarter millennia of places where new technologies produce collective actions by human beings, where thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people all make choices. Mm-hmm. They all have agency. Right. It's, it's not a determinism. And yet the collective decisions are so piled up that it's kind of hard to imagine how it might have been right. any, anyhow right. else. Though, I, again, I'm not an, a determinist in any way. Um, so clearly, the deus ex machina of that book is the railroad. Mm-hmm. And clearly, the emerging possibilities of the railroad. And remember, the railroad is not a technology. It's a cultural system. Mm-hmm. It's a set of human relationships. And it's a set of power relationships that get articulated through what seems like a machine, right. but is, in fact, an enormous social system. And so one answer to your question, we, you'd have to look for other places that had the potential through the railroad to control larger areas of hinterland space. And that did, in fact, happen. That's where Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I mean, Atlanta emerges as the railroad hub of the American Southeast. Right. It had nothing like the significance prior to the railroad that it did. In Canada, it's very clear to me that Winnipeg is, is the Chicago equivalent. Mm-hmm for the for Manitoba and Saskatchewan in many, many ways. The Winnipeg story is the Chicago story mm-hmm. for that very rich grain-producing region of, mm-hmm. of, of Canada. Yeah. Uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul is that. I don't think it would have been Milwaukee. Uh, it's, again, too far on the lake. Right. Now I'm yeah. becoming a geographical determinist right. in, that, in that space. Um, but So it would be other cities that were able to take advantage of the possibilities of the railroad. And the Twin Cities are a brilliant example. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they did to flour milling, what was made possible for the production of flour in that city would have been inconceivable without the railroads making it possible
2: there's a there's a term you use
1: well first of all this isn't
2: just a historical book it's a moral book it is yeah. and um you make the, the use the phrase that's that I'd never come across before, and uh the stored sunshine you know. Was that your term, or was that a term
1: of the of the of the field i don 't know i, I mean I, I came of age in the 1970s and I lived under the sign of the energy crisis of the 1970s My Oxford dissertation was about energy, so I, the idea that, that fossil fuels are stored sunshine is certainly not my invention mm-hmm. i don 't think it 's a common phrase, but i 'm a writer, and right. I like evocative language of that kind so um, I, I use it in a particular way.
2: Yeah, it, that to me, you know, you're, you're basically talking about how Chicago uh, uh, and the whole American economy uh, went to the bank of nature and just cashed in all the chips and just you know let's go let's go do it. You right. know, um, did you get pushback from from other historians about? that kind of moral, uh, pointing that, that morality out?
1: You know, one of the things I actually love about the discipline of history is that I mean, historians are narrators. Well, I, I honestly think we are the last explicitly narrative discipline left in the American Academy with the journalists as well, but storytelling is no longer in most disciplines regarded as a serious undertaking. And I believe about storytelling as an activity that it is inherently a moral, a moral activity, which is to say it's about organizing events and characters and landscapes, settings, um, so that a series of events become explicable in the sequence of relationships that are unfolding over the course of the narrative. And almost always, the narrative has some lesson in mind, whether that's an explicitly moralizing lesson, um, different writers answer that differently. But again, one of the beauties of history is that although there have been moments when historians have argued with each other about whether they are objective or not, right. um, objectivity is actually not the phrase that most historians use to describe what they do. I mean, my word now is it seems to me our goal is to be fair to the people whose lives we narrate. Mm -hmm. And that means trying to see the world through their eyes and try to, one of my beliefs as a writer and as a teacher is that if I'm going to argue against something, it's morally incumbent upon me to be able to articulate the thing I'm arguing against so that a person who holds that view recognizes that I've done justice to their point of view. For me, the highest praise is, if I'm articulating something I'm about to disagree about, disagree with, if I can describe in such a way that the person who holds that view says, you know, I couldn't have said that better myself, right. then I've, I think I've done justice to their position and can begin to enter into a dialogue about other ways of thinking about that. And that's part of my moral project. I mean, my deepest moral project is to understand the world. Mm-hmm. And, and understanding the world is a really complicated task and my moral conviction is that rich understanding of the world leads to better more responsible juster better action in the world that when we when we act on the basis of our own mythic conceptions where we believe our own lies and, and we're forever lying to ourselves because we want to we want the world to conform to our convictions about the world and not Letting ourselves do that, holding ourselves accountable for the the lies we're always at risk to tell ourselves about ourselves is part of acting morally in the world. Right, right.
2: Well, um, I've been asking lots of questions, and um, we wanted to give a chance for the audience to ask questions. Um, We've got uh, one or two uh, microphones. Um, uh, Does somebody want to start? Otherwise, I'll just keep talking.
3: I know you're good at picking apart your own work and talking about what aspects of it don't hold up, but could you give us your perspective on how nature's metropolis does hold up after all this time and what its ongoing relevance to
0: environmental history or US history is? Well I hope it, I
1: hope it I hope anybody reading that book um at least gives some thought to when they write about cities, ask about what's the relationship of that city to the landscape and relationships that it's embedded within. I think it I, th- I think it's pretty hard not to do that, actually, after you read the book. So one of the ways that the book holds up is to really force people to recognize that that relationship is a pretty foundational. Relationship, which is not to say that everybody needs to keep writing that book. That would be crazy. There are many people in this room who've written books that have affected me in much the same way that I've just described about city country on other sets of categories, other lenses for seeing the world that I didn't do justice to at all in the writing of that book. I'd say too that that um, you know, in a funny kind of way. I, so the day after the November election. Uh, Many people in this room were teaching uh, at that time. And different people made different choices about what they were going to talk with their students about in the wake of the election. Um, What I did, because I was teaching a course on the making of the American landscape that was a very map-dependent book, was to put on the screen at the beginning of the lecture two slides, one of which showed uh, all the blue and red states in the United States since the Eisenhower election of 1952. So every presidential election since 1952, looking at blue-red states, and then every blue-red county distribution for 2000, 2008, 2012, 2016. And what, for me, as the author of Nature's Metropolis, jumps off those maps, spectacularly jumps off those maps, is the rural-urban divide that is not uniformly red-blue. The the black belt of northern Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama is a very rural area, and it's blue in those maps. And there are Indian reservations and Latino areas in the southwest and on the Rockies that are blue. And I could give you other examples. Menominee County in Wisconsin is blue. Um, But the red-blue divide in those maps is very much a rural-urban divide and thinking about the rural-urban boundaries in American politics right now. It's not that those are the same things that Nature's Metropolis is talking about, but that is a new phenomenon in American politics. And the book I'm writing right now uh, that that Marcia described as uh, saving nature and time, I think I have a new title for it now in the wake of the November election. But really, that pattern of rural-urban division in the partisan voting in the United States is new in the 21st century. It's it's a strikingly new phenomenon. And um, I wouldn't say Nature's Metropolis explains that. It doesn't at all. But it is a reminder that the rural-urban boundary is alive and well in our political and cultural life. And I would say, I think, so you, you said I'm, a, I, I'm a, a writer who has a moral project, which I embrace that description with gratitude. Um, I, So when I describe the moral of nature's metropolis, and I'm still committed to this moral of the book, and it's what I try to articulate in the closing pages of the book, it's that it it tries to describe in a very rich textured way the paradox that at the very moment that the world was becoming ever more intimately interconnected and intricately connected to a degree never before seen in the history of the world, those interconnections were being rendered opaque by the people embedded within them so they could no longer see those relationships. And for me, one of the paradoxes of modernity is that we are unbelievably interconnected in the world today. And most of those interconnections, most people don't see at all. And how you can take moral and political responsibility for the consequences of your own life if you don't know how your own actions are proliferating out into the world, I just don't know how you do that. And I think that's... A big chunk of what environmental history has always been about.
3: I had the good fortune to learn through your Facebook account, we framed it on Facebook, uh, that your son embarked on a trail through all the national parks of the United States uh, while trying to feed himself as a vegan. And through this I also learned that uh, you and your wife, the parents of this kid, smart kid, um were vegetarians for environmental reasons. And since ever since then I have been wondering how much did all the meat <laughs> you were talking about either convince you to become a vegetarian or so what's the what's the relation between your body Experience of a moral life as a vegetarian and nature's
1: control. Yeah, that's a great question. And people, particularly when they read the meat chapter of that book, uh, <laughs> at, I mean, they all ask me if I'm a vegetarian after reading that. And I should say I'm not a vegetarian. I do eat meat. I don't eat very much meat. So I'm now, I think, what Michael Pollan would call a flexitarian. Um, we raised our kids not eating meat until our daughter repelled, rebelled at age 15 and insisted that she wanted meat. Our son never so rebelled, though he did eat a little bacon for a few years in his teenage years. Uh, but he then went even more deeply into vegetarianism and and has become a pretty committed vegan for the last eight years. I don't think he has broken his commitment to veganism. And given all the places he's been traveling, uh, that's a challenging thing to do. He cooks much of his own food in order to accomplish that goal. Um, So there are kind of three broad reasons why people become vegetarian. One is eating low on the food chain, which is kind of a classic 1970s vintage environmentalist reason to become a vegetarian. And that's certainly how I entered into a predominantly vegetarian eating pattern, sort of in the spirit of Francis Moore LePay would be. LePay was very influential on my thinking about that. A second is in animal rights, not wanting to hurt sentient beings. A second reason to be a vegetarian. And the third would be health. There are many people who don't. And I actually think that is Jeremy's predominant reason. He just thinks it's healthier to not eat meat and not eat eggs or or dairy. Uh, Although he's happy that he's not hurting sentient beings and that he's eating low on the food chain, I think his primary one is a health reason. Um, So I think that's my my answer. Donald Donald Worcester once said, although I've never been able to find where in print Don said this, Don knows, I'd love to know that environmental history begins in the belly. I've been quoting that line forever. I think I heard him say it maybe, but if somebody can quote me chapter and verse of exactly where those words appear on paper, I would love to know where it is. And I actually think that that's true. Particularly when you think about this project that I just articulated to Emily's question of the moral project of taking responsibility for the consequences of one's life in the world, which is moral and political, I don't, I don't keep those two words very separate in my own vocabulary. Uh, food is an awfully interesting place to think about one's own moral life, though I am not of the view that it's that simply changing the way you eat is a sufficient political act in the world. So, is there a wild America
3: or? Is
1: it lost? Huh. Um, so I think he just asked that not of the author of Nature's Metropolis, but of the author of an essay called The Trouble with Wilderness. Although uh, a- anybody who reads Nature's Metropolis carefully will recognize that the arguments of Trouble with Wilderness are sketched in the prologue as they're even more sketched in Changes in the Land. Um, so what I would say is. You know, I've, I, I have. Been, it is It is absolutely true that I have served on the Governing Council of the Wilderness Society for the last two decades, and it is an organization that I am deeply committed to. And I would say to all of you, this is a political statement, that um, at this particular moment, organizations like the Wilderness Society are on the front lines of really important work in the world that I would urge all of you to think about whether you care to support that work. Um, but I am of the view, as an environmental historian, that... The wild, and much of my life has been passionately engaged with exploring and experiencing the wild, is a human experience of the world, which is to say, without a human consciousness to perceive the world, I don't think that there's something called wild. I think wild is a human emotion, an experience of the sublime, an experience of the sacred, when standing in the face of something larger than ourselves. And I think that different people experience that sublime, divine experience of that which is larger than ourselves, which we did not make on different scales, in different contexts, different ritual spaces. For me, standing in front of, standing in deep wilderness, is as, as defined by American law in the 1964 Wilderness Act or defined by our National Parks, or moves me enormously. Um, and I think that that is a profound experience that has in no way come to an end. I mean, the wild exists in the world, and to imagine that the wild has gone away, I think, is to imagine that human power is far greater than in fact it is, and the, to imagine that we have the power to destroy that is, is, I think, to misunderstand the nature thing. I also think that the wild is currently in my gut. I, I, I think that my gut is the wilderness in certain odd ways. I don't control what's going on in my microbiome right now. I really don't control it. I can affect it. And I can eat some food back there that's going to cause all sorts of disruption down in this space. But I did not make it. It, is not, it does not obey my consciousness. It, does not, it is not under my control. And for me, the, I know I'm babbling now, but the, 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 the power of the wild is to remind us of the finitude of our own power and to invite us to recognize how important humility is in the face of the creation. Uh, and that we cannot destroy. We can destroy our perception of it. And that would be lethal indeed. But we can't destroy the world; we can destroy ourselves, not the world.
2: One follow-up question on that: To find the wild, do you have to go to Yellowstone, or can you go outside the door here? I, I,
1: well, so I, I, I want to here. I want to be really careful. Uh, you know, I think it's crucial to defend Yellowstone. I, I, oh, I no Yeah, this is not. So, so, it's, it's, it, so it, scale or. matters. Yeah, scale matters. Yeah. So, big, deep wilderness matters, yeah. and it's precious that this nation and others in the world are protecting it. (laughs) I would remind all of you in this room that there's something called the Arctic Refuge that most Americans no longer even know exists. The Arctic Refuge is once again at play, deeply at play. You should remember what it is, and that's deep wilderness. But yes, I do actually believe, given the answer I just gave to Don, that recognizing the non-human other as an embodiment of the wild is something we can do here in Chicago, which does not mean it's the same as the Arctic Refuge. Right. They're different. And yet, and yet I want to recognize the otherness of them
3: both. Right. Bill, if you were to get the MacArthur grant tomorrow to ask you to invert your study of nature's Metropolis to look at the impact of the Hitcher land on the city, what would you write about in terms of what chapters would you add to nature's Metropolis to talk about the environmental impacts of the hinterland. You mean the, a
1: micro-study of what goes on inside the city? because only many...
3: a micro, but a urban scale. Nothing the regional scale.
1: Well, so, huh. So I, I, in, there are many ways in which, at least the way you framed the question, I do think Nature's Metropolis does that, which is to say, the, the book cherry-picks those places in Chicago that are most vividly related to the hinterland and where you can see the hinterland present in the city, which is a little bit different from what you said. I, I think my best answer to that is actually the Portage book. The Portage book is a critique of nature's metropolis. It's a critique for the lack of people in nature's metropolis, and it is taking a very small place and its surrounding countryside that oddly sits in the, exactly the same geographical location, which is on the boundary between the St. Lawrence and the Mississippi watersheds. So it's right, it's, I mean, right now, I mean, right now, I don't know. can't orient myself in this room. You know, The water's going that way toward the St. Lawrence. And that way, it's going down toward the Mississippi. I made my angle wrong in terms of the way I just did that. Um, and so I don't know. It, it, uh, I think what you just asked is what I'm trying to do in the Portage book.
3: look
1: forward to it. OK, thanks.
2: It also would seem to me that Nature's Metropolis is about how Chicago was affected by yep. the internet. I mean, you, Chicago doesn't exist if it wasn't for the trees and if it wasn't for right. the farms and if it wasn't for all that stuff. I mean, you could build a railroad here, but if there's nothing to bring to it, nothing. does Yeah, so, I agree. The questions back there? Thanks, Bill. Um, this is back to a couple questions ago where you
3: talked about politics and the story Something that I really notice is that Trump has made Chicago a particular kind of synecdoche of all oh, that's wrong with urban America. Um, can you talk a little bit about why do you think Chicago has become such a target for certain kinds of political anger? And then the much bigger question I want you to reflect on is what do we do now? As environmental historians, we spent two decades critiquing environmentalism, and I sometimes wonder if we've done too
1: good a job of that, perhaps? So there's two different questions. I think that the reasons why Chicago is a particular lightning rod for that kind of critique, it's Barack Obama's hometown, so that's one. The murder rates in the city are formidable and scary. They are racialized murder rates, so if you're looking for um, you know, a dog whistle kind of description that invokes race without invoking race. Those are all in that territory. It's a democratic city, long been a democratic city. So I, I, I think it's all of those things, and it just makes a convenient hook to hang that material on. I don't think it's deeper than that. Um, he's also a New Yorker, <laughs> so... yeah. <laughs> New Yorkers have long been inclined to look at the second city and dismiss it in, in, in the kind of way that we're seeing there um, I don't I actually don't think that the environmental historians critiques of environmentalism are what we're mainly seeing enacted in the public realm right now uh, I don't think that that you know rich history of environmentalism that people in this room have done so much to described, that's not what I see at play in our politics right now to a great degree. There's no question that um, what, what in, same, in April of 1970 seemed like one big thing called environmentalism, you know, a, a single unified movement, um, I think was always an illusion in the sense that it was always many things that seemed like one thing at that moment of the first Earth Day. And that one thing has been critiqued from both the right and the left and from inside of itself. And as it's been critiqued, and I don't think environmental historians have been at the center of a number of these critiques, that one thingness uh, has had a series of wedges driven into it that have been expressed in our partisan politics. And the the book Saving Nature and Time that I'm in the middle of and the one that's at the head of my queue right now has as one of its core questions, how did American environmentalism cease to be a bipartisan political project in the United States after about 1976 or thereabouts? What what were the very particular reasons why that played out the way that it did? And there are a lot of self-congratulating reasons that are sometimes given as the answer to that question, but I think it's actually a very complicated question that has to do with the way in which American parties shifted in that period, the way the New Deal coalition collapsed, in effect, and how party politics in the United States changed, with environmental issues ending up on one side of the emerging new boundary in that period. Um, But I I, I really think I, I do mainly reject the premise of your second question, that it's somehow the work of people in this room that enabled what has been growing over the last 40 years as a critique of environmentalism as an embodiment of the regulatory state and as a a threat to American liberty, as well as two or three other things that are how environmentalism as a category no longer resonates as fully across the political spectrum as it did say back in 1970 at a radically different political moment than the one that we're at right now.
2: Other questions
1: Thanks. I, uh, I'm Brian Lander and I study ancient Chinese environmental history it's all good. and I know uh, quite a few people who study Mesopotamia and we all find nature's metropolis really useful good. for thinking about how the relationship between urbanism and you know, rural throughout human history which is a, uh, sort of a central function of civilization uh, so I just wanted to say that I, I, I appreciate that that was on my mind, actually, as I thought about the book. Not Mesopotamia, <laughs> but the, the city as a phenomenon. I mean, I, mean, I will tell you, people in this room No, for me, one of my heroes, I mean, I, you know, the say, t- dozen intellectuals who have most shaped my adult consciousness, Raymond Williams is high on that list, and his book, The Country and the City, is still one of the most amazing texts on what you just pointed at, as any I know. And he begins in Roman antiquity and Greco-Roman antiquity. So, thank you all for your patience in this. It's great to be here.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of Che the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by me, Brian Hamilton, with special thanks to Lisa Maedo. The music you're listening to is by Julian Lynch. In the weeks ahead, look for new episodes featuring Adam Rome, William DeBuise, and more. Get them sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the Edge Effects podcast in the iTunes store. You can also find us on Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeeffects.net.